So we're going to be reading from verse 1 to 22 of chapter 25 of Exodus, and then we'll be moving to chapter 39. So if you want to put your finger in the pages, I'll uh, tell you the page when we get there. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then let them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Let them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold moulding around it. Cast four gold rings for it, and fasten them to its four feet, with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upwards overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking towards the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. There, above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. And then we're going to move to chapter 39, verses 32 to 43, and that is on page 99 of the Church Bibles. So all the work on the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was completed. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its furnishings, its clasps, frames, crossbar, crossbars, posts and bases, 
the covering of ramskins dyed red, and the covering of another durable leather, and the shielding curtain, the Ark of the Covenant Law with its poles and the atonement cover, the table with all its articles and the bread of the presence, the pure gold lampstand with its rows of lamps and all its accessories, and the olive oil for the light, the gold altar, the anointing oil, the fragrant incense, and the curtain for the entrance to the tent, the bronze altar with its bronze grating, its poles and all its utensils, the basin with its stand, the curtains of the courtyard with its posts and bases, and the curtain for the entrance to the courtyard, the ropes and tent pegs for the courtyard, all the furnishings for the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and the woven garments worn for ministering in the sanctuary, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when serving as priests. The Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. So Moses blessed them. Let me pray for us. Open our eyes, Lord, so that we might see wonderful things in your word. Teach us. And teach us not just about this tabernacle we'll be reading about, but ultimately, Lord, teach us about the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, when my family and I went on holiday this last summer, we had to do a bit of reading first to be able to do that. It's a very exciting read. It included little gems like this. Let me quote it for you. Insert each fiberglass pole through each sleeve at the top of the fly. Insert the black plastic elbow to the ends of each fiberglass pole. Clip the extended steel poles to each corner of the rain fly with the pre-bent end at the top where you then connect the fiberglass poles. It's good, isn't it? It's a riveting read. Uh, how about this bit? Insert the smallest poles through the pole sleeve located in the door awning. Insert each end into the adjacent PP webbing pocket which would be an amazing pseudonym, wouldn't it, for you writing your books? I am PP Webbing Pocket. Anyway, insert each end into the adjacent PP Webbing Pocket and hook the inner tent to the underside of the rainfly, starting from the bottom rear and working your way forward to the top, using the toggles on the outer wall of the inner tent with the loops running along the underside of the rainfly. I hope that made sense to you. Uh, perhaps you've read something similar. It, of course, it is the instructions for putting up our tent. It's not my favourite read that I've ever had, uh, but it was absolutely necessary because unless we got those instructions and understood those, we couldn't have had our holiday together. Well, our Bible reading this evening might seem a bit similar to that. Uh, we've got, starting in, in chapter 25, we've got seven chapters of instructions for how to build a tent. And then we've got six chapters describing people actually doing it. So, uh, yes, we're covering 13 chapters this evening. That's Exodus 25 to 31 and then 35 to 40. So, 
Uh, we're sort of going back in time to when the instructions were given, and then we're skipping to after the things we've already done so far in the series to finish off the book. Like but before you switch off, we will be whipping through it. It won't be extra long. And unlike the Scandica Hurricane 12, this tent has a lot to teach us, has a lot to teach us about our amazing God. And just as pitching my tent was a way of saying to Liv and the children, I want to spend time with you. So God's tent, the tabernacle, says he wants to be with his people. There is a problem, however. As we've seen before in Exodus, God is unapproachably holy. He is like a roaring inferno that you cannot get near to. Our sin keeps us from God. So how can God pitch his tent in the middle of the camp? How is it possible that all these people who've now been brought out into the wilderness and living in tents can have God in one of the tents when they're so sinful? That's what we'll be thinking about tonight as we finish our series in Exodus. Because built right into the fabric and the design of this tabernacle, this tent, are two messages. The tabernacle says loud and clear, both come in and keep out. And we're going to look at each of those and then see how Jesus is the one to fulfill it all. Jesus is the one that we need. So let's start off with that first message, come in. Or in other words, the Lord dwells with his people. The Lord dwells with his people. So yes, if you've closed your Bibles, open them again to Exodus 25. And you'll see it starts with the Lord listing all the materials they're going to need. All the stuff. I want you to have a whip round and this is all the stuff you're going to need for building it. And then he tells them what it's for. So look in verse 8 and 9. Then let them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So that's the goal. That's the goal for the tent. I will dwell among them. You think of the people of Israel, they've been slaves in Egypt, they've now been rescued out, they're living in tents in the desert, and God says, make me a tent, make me a tent as well, I'm moving into the neighbourhood, I want to be with you. And that's God's plan all along, wasn't it, to save the people and then be with them as their God's. And so the first thing that he asked them to make when he said, gather all the stuff and make a sanctuary, the first bit is the bit that represents where he will be. And that is the ark, the ark of the covenant, not Noah's ark, but a box, a chest, just under four feet long. And it's made of wood, and yet we're told in verse 11, overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold moulding around it. Now, it would have looked something like this up there, a beautiful golden box with poles on the side so that it could be carried without actually touching it. And it would have had an ornate lid on it. See verse 17, an atonement cover of pure gold, sometimes called the mercy seat or the throne of grace. 
This idea that on top of this slab of gold at the top, there's these two cherubim, this kind of angel, facing each other with their wings spread out ahead. And inside that box, that ark, in verse 21, would be the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on it. And we read this in verse 22. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. That is what is at the heart of the tabernacle, this ark, this throne, where the Lord himself would meet with them, dwelling with his people. That is a wonderful thing, isn't it? To have, what do we want at the right of the heart of it? The place where God is going to sit. That's at the heart of it. The next thing that he describes, if you keep reading down, is the table. Again, it's wooden, covered in gold, with poles for carrying. If you read through this, and I do recommend you read the whole thing at some point, uh, you'll read there's lots of rings and poles. There's an awful lot of clasps and rings and poles because the whole thing needs to be dismantled and it needs to be portable because the people are going to travel and everywhere they travel, God wants to be with them. And so that's built into it. So they put rings on the side and stick the poles through and then you can sort of carry it along like that. Uh, and there's all that all over the place because God wants to go with them wherever they go. But why do they need a table? Well, it says in verse 30, if you look at chapter 25, verse 30, that they should put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. So there's bread there, not in case God gets hungry, fancies a snack, I always want something there. No, it's a symbol of friendship. If you think of home as where you eat together. And so God is saying the table must always be laid to declare to the people the invitation is always open. Come in. Come in and have fellowship with God. The bread is there to show I'm present with my people, to eat with them. And when the elders had gone up Mount Sinai, what did they do? They ate a meal halfway up the mountain. And this is the same thing, saying here we are meeting with God and there's a meal of fellowship. The next uh, bit of furniture we read is about the lampstand. So it's seven oil lamps on this impressive sort of candelabra thing. And it's meant to look like a tree. So look at verse 31. It says, make a lampstand of pure gold. Hammer out its base and shaft and make its flower-like cups, buds and blossoms of one piece with them. So we've got these branches coming off a central trunk, if you like. And each branch is covered with almond flowers, we're told. It must have been absolutely beautiful when it was lit. I think this shining tree that burns and isn't consumed. Does it remind you of anything? It's like the burning bush, isn't it? That we read about much earlier in the series. It's the place Moses met with God. Or like the fire on the top of Mount Sinai. This is where God dwells with his people. And I think in particular we're supposed to be reminded of Eden. The Garden of Eden, that place where God and humanity lived together perfectly in the beginning. There's lots of beautiful trees and flowers and pomegranates and things like that described in the detail of these, these things. It's not just a plain, flat surface. Everything is detailed and beautiful with flowers and beautiful creation. 
Seven times in these chapters, we're told, the Lord said to Moses. The Lord said to Moses. And I think we're supposed to, again, be reminded of that creation week, where we keep reading again, and God said, and God said, and God said, and it happened. The list of materials that we read out at the start of chapter 25, they start with gold in verse 3 and end with onyx in verse 7. And that's just how it is in Genesis 2, where it talks about the land around Eden. And it says, the gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are there also. So I think this is supposed to be, the tabernacle is like a mini Eden. Think of Adam and Eve kicked out east of Eden, sent away from God for their sin. But in the tabernacle, God is inviting people back to come in again. So much so that in chapter 27, verse 13 to 15, we're told where the entrance is. We're told that it is to be on the east end towards the sunrise. So you've got this idea of humanity has been booted out away from God that way, and now they're being invited back in. Come back in, he cries. Come back in. The Lord dwells with his people, ruling from his throne, shining in brilliant gold and fire, offering food and fellowship. But these three bits of furniture, they aren't just left outside for anyone to see. You can't wander up and grab a bite from the table. You can't wander up and sit down on the mercy seat. Chapter 26 goes on to give instructions for the tabernacle itself, the tent that covered over all this stuff and hid it from view. Because God's tent doesn't just say, come in. It also says, keep out. It says, you can't come in here. The Lord is in here. He's too holy to be approached. We are too sinful. So if these things are going to represent God with his people, well, it needs to be covered over four times with different stuff and no one's allowed in. If the Lord's going to dwell with his people, then our sin must be dealt with. Our sin must be dealt with. All the ways we reject God, break his rules, do our own thing, put other things in his place. God can't just ignore that. It's too serious. And so when he pitches his tent in the middle of the camp, it's as if he surrounds it with barbed wire and an electric fence and signposts saying no entry. If people like us are going to have him with us, our sin must first be dealt with. One of the keep out signs is the tabernacle itself. Read chapter 26, verse 1. Make the tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple and scarlet yarn with cherubim woven into them by a skilled worker. Now, cherubim were the ones stationed in Eden with flaming swords barring the way to stop Adam and Eve returning. And now we've got these cherubim sewn into the fabric of the tent. Keep out. You can't come in here. We've got the ark, the table, and the lampstand. Here's our little bird's eye view. It's not to scale. And they're put inside this thick tent 
with a curtain across it. You've got on this tent, we're told about a beautiful blue layer first. So if you were inside, it would have looked blue. And then on top of it, in, in verse 6, it talks about a layer of goat hair. And then in verse 14, you've got a layer of dyed red ram skins. And then a final layer of durable leather to protect it from the elements. I imagine that bit would have been the rain fly in my, uh, my tent instructions. All of these things, layer after layer after layer, hiding God's presence from view. And even within that tent, there's further separation. If you read chapter 26, verse 33 to 35. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the Ark of the Covenant law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Put the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant law in the most holy place. Place the table outside the curtain on the north side of the tabernacle, but the lampstand opposite it on the south side. So again, if we look at our little diagram, the ark, the bit where God is, is cordoned off. You cannot come near. Now, this has slightly squished it. It, it is a perfect cube in that bit. Um, so that is the bit where God is, and you can't come in. He's in the inner bit, the inner tent within the outer tent, this most holy place. Now, if that was all the instructions, that would be desperately sad, isn't it? When he says, that, that's it, we've got me in my tent, you out there, the end. That would be desperately, desperately sad. But as we head into chapter 27, we start seeing how our sin might be dealt with. How our sin might actually be dealt with. So these are sort of keep out signs in the sense that they're flagging up our sin. And yet, if our sin is dealt with and we go in through these ways, we can come in. That's what the message was to those people. So far, the, the instructions have all been from God's perspective, kind of working from the inside out. And now, from chapter 27, it, it travels the journey of the average Israelite coming from the outside in. And the first thing you would have encountered would have been the altar of burnt offering. The altar burnt offering probably looks something like that, a kind of square cabinet. Again, you've got the poles on the things. A square cabinet with a grill on top for burning, a sort of mobile barbecue kind of thing. Made of bronze. It's not gold. All the stuff in the holy places is gold. This is bronze. And then the closer you get in, you've got silver, and then we've got gold right in the middle. So this is this bronze thing. And it would have been slap bang in the middle when you first approached. A bit like the doormat when you come into the entrance of a house. A doormat says to you, doesn't it, you can't come in with dirty shoes. Please wipe your feet. And this altar, as it's the first thing you see, it says, you can't come in with your sin. But how do you wipe that off? Well, our sin means that we should die. That would be a just punishment. If we arrive to meet with God, he says, you cannot come near because of your sin, and then we get dead. That would be fair. But instead, we come to this altar where there are sacrifices made, animals killed instead of sinners like us. The blood of those animals would have been poured out, splattered on the side of that altar. Their meat loaded onto the top and burned. 
of the bulls and the lambs and the goats were offered up and killed so that the people could be free to live and keep coming in closer towards where God is. Even this place of sacrifice, however, couldn't just be just out there in the middle of everybody else. They needed to build a courtyard. So there's kind of posts put all the way around the outside with these white linen curtains. It's a bit like a windbreaker if you go to the beach and you're organised and you might have a windbreaker with sort of things in the sand and it's got a, a sheet. It would have been like that, so no roof over this bit. Sort of a fence all around the edge, all the way around with then an entrance curtain on that east side. And you can start to see, can't you, that it's starting to come together. We've got this outer courtyard around the tabernacle. But if you've got people living on the outside, God living not just in the tabernacle, but in the holy, holy, holy bit, who gets to go in? Who gets to go actually in there? Well, only the priests. Any Israelite could enter the courtyard, but only certain people could offer the sacrifices, could actually go into the tabernacle itself. And as we get into chapter 28, it outlines the stuff that's going to need to be made for the priests to wear. And we'll look at the detail of that later on. But as you go through that, it talks about all the stuff they need to wear, and the ephod, which is sort of like a, a tabard, if you think of a cleaning lady having a sort of tabard over the top, and the breastplate, this thing that goes on the front, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And, and then you get into chapter 29, where it talks about what they're going to need to do to consecrate the priests, that is, set them apart for their job. And what we find there is a week-long series of sacrifices. Because those priests were sinners as well. They couldn't stroll into where God lives any more than we could or anybody else. They needed sacrifices. They needed this week of death after death after death. More and more and more blood. And I mean, they would have come out. They've got beautiful clothes on, but they would have come out looking like they worked in an abattoir. It's just blood everywhere. And it's got, you've got to get some blood and stick it on their ears. You've got to get some blood, put it on their big toe. You've got to get some blood and splash it. It's just all of this death as that reminder that we, we, that's what we deserve. And yet others are killed in their place instead. It's only after all of that that they were pure enough to serve the Lord. As you head into chapter 30, we're introduced to the altar of incense. And you can see it's pretty similar to the other altar, a bit smaller. And this was, was for burning sweet-smelling powder. And it would be placed just outside the most holy place, just by the curtain. And it would have made the whole thing into a sort of complete sensory experience. You think you've got the sights and the sounds and the smells of this smoke rising before the presence of God. The priests would be able to go in to that bit and they'd light the lamps and they'd put the fresh bread on the table and they'd burn the incense. But there was one more bit of furniture that reminds us of sin. And that uh, comes in the end part of, uh, uh, in the middle of, of chapter 30, and that's the basin you can see that, that basin there. Giant bowl of water outside the tent. Now you think about during COVID, where everywhere has a little hand sanitizing station. You can't go in anywhere 
without doing all the stuff and getting on your wrists and doing all that sort of stuff. You can't go in until you've done that. And it's a reminder, wasn't it, that germs and viruses are invisible, but they're dangerous and need to be dealt with. And so these priests had to continually wash. And it's sort of there in the middle because when they come out, they've got to wash to come in to do the sacrifice and then they go past it. They've got to wash to go in to do the next bit and then they come out and they've got to wash. And they keep washing, 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 which is why it's right there in the middle before they come in, before they go out. And a sign that sin, our sin, your sin, my sin, it's invisible, but it pollutes us. It needs to be washed away. It couldn't be more serious, could it? Chapter 30 Verse 20 and 21 says, Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. So whether they're going into the tent or coming out to go to the thing, they've got to wash or they'll die. The tabernacle screams, doesn't it? Keep out. Keep out. You can come in, but only certain people on certain times, certain days, as long as they've done the certain things to deal with sin. Otherwise, keep out. Danger of death. And as if to drive home the importance of all these things, Once the instructions are given and we get to the end of chapter 31 and Moses is like, right, brilliant, I'll head down and tell everybody what to do. What does he find when he gets down to the bottom of the mountain? We covered this a few weeks ago. He comes down to the bottom, ready to tell everybody all about how God wants to live with them and finds them worshipping a golden calf. Instead of melting down all their gold and silver and bronze to build this beautiful tent and all its stuff, they've made a cow. Instead of approaching the Lord in reverence and awe the way he's told them to come to him, they're dancing about naked, worshipping this made-up God. We are that sinful. We shouldn't just listen to that bit and go, oh, those dreadful people, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah, we would. We do that all the time. We hear the kinds of things God tells us to do and we go off and do something else ridiculous instead. But the Lord is so gracious. He is so gracious. And it's remarkable after that, didn't we see? Remember after that, Moses goes up and he meets with God face to face. And amazingly, the plans for the tabernacle still go ahead. He still wants to live with them. He still wants to be there. It's amazing. This past week, uh, we had a delivery arriving from Ikea. A load of chipboard and plastic and screws and a set of instructions. Now, there's some wonderful pictures in here. You know, the little, the little guy, um, do you remember the little guy from Ikea? How he is trying to work out what on earth he's doing and he, he makes sure he's careful and he rings them if he knows what to do. You know, that, that sort of thing. Now, these are great pictures. But again, this is not something you just read and then go, oh, excellent, brilliant, now I, know, now I know what that was about. No, you then need to do what we did yesterday, which was actually build it, and now we've got a shoe rack by the back door. So if chapters 25 to 31 are that instruction manual saying, here's all the bits you're going to need, and here's 
you know, insert pole A into section B and all that stuff. Chapters 35 to 40 are the action. It's where the thing actually gets built. Almost everything from the first bit is repeated here exactly. Now, again, don't worry. That doesn't mean I'm going to do all my points in the sermon again. Don't worry. But it's important, isn't it, that it is repeated. It's important that it all matches up. Ten times we're told in this second bit that they did it as the Lord commanded Moses. And so they did blah, 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 and they put the poles in the section B as the Lord commanded Moses. And then they hung the thing on the clasps and put the bits on the bobs as the Lord commanded Moses. That is so important that they followed the instructions to the finest, tiniest detail because it's only by listening to God's word and actually putting it into practice that it's going to work. The only thing that's different between the instructions and the doing is the order that it's written down. So I was doing a bit of wrestling with this to go, okay, well, what's that about? Well, um, Tim Chester helped me out with this one. Tim Chester talks about this. He says that the instructions are given in theological order. They start with God and then they work their way out. But the description of the building would have been given in chronological order, the order they actually built it in. So first we've got them gathering the materials and recruiting the workers. So have a look at in chapter 35, verse 4. Chapter 35, verse 4. Moses said to the whole Israelite community, This is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold and silver and bronze. And then he lists all the stuff they're going to need. And then have a look to verse 10. All who are skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. So you've got this amazing community effort, isn't it? Everybody, come and bring your time and your money and your granny's jewellery and all the stuff. And we're going to melt it down and we're going to work together. And if you're skilled, you're good at sewing, you're good at this. We can all work together to make this thing happen. And people are so up for it that in chapter 36, verse 6, we're told this. Then Moses gave an order and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more because what they'd already had was more than enough to do all the work. And you might read that instruction and go, well, they've got topaz and jacinth and all these things that are, I don't quite know what they are, but they're very expensive things. They've got all that gold and the top's just pure gold. And he's going, stop, 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 stop. We've got more than enough of that because people have been so provoked to generosity. Isn't that wonderful? They're having to say, calm down, stop being so generous. It's a great picture, isn't it, of, of, of church life for us now. Where don't worry, I'm not going to say, oh, we should cover the table in gold or anything like that. But that wonderful thing of saying, serving the Lord, come on, everybody, bring your time and energy and gifts and money. Let's put this together in generosity. These people are no longer slaving for Pharaoh. They're volunteering for the Lord. So they gather all that stuff, they gather all the personnel, and then they get to work. And you can see the order again. They build the tabernacle first and its curtains. Then they make the furniture that goes in the tabernacle. You've got the ark and the table and the lampstand and the altar of incense. And then they build all the furniture that went outside. So you've got the courtyard and, uh, and all that stuff around the edge. 
And then after that, they make the priestly uniforms and things, and they're done. They're finally all finished, and it's time for a site inspection, if you like. They, they walk all the way around it. And this thing would have been 150 feet long. That's about the width of a football pitch. Half that again wide. The tabernacle itself was about 15 by 45 foot. There's plenty of it to look at, isn't there? They, they walk around it. You see Moses kind of going around with a clipboard, making sure everything's up to God's very meticulous building regs. Have they done it exactly as he told them to do it? And the verdict comes, chapter 39, verse 42 and 43. The Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. So Moses blessed them. Job well done, everybody. He signs off on the whole thing. It's a bit like, again, the final day of creation as he looks at everything they've made and sees it's very good. And so chapter 40 begins with God himself giving the thumbs up. See verse 1, chapter 40, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. So the Lord says, right, New Year's Day, let's cut the ribbon. Let's declare the tabernacle open. It's so good, isn't it? But listen to the shock ending of the book. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So having done all of this, the whole thing kind of goes boom in this flash of glory, and then the clouds of smoke fill the whole thing up, and no one can go in. And Moses is forced to evacuate. And then the book finishes. What a weird way to end the book. And saying, yeah, this happened all the time. Everywhere they went, they set the thing up and then pretty much couldn't go in because there was <laughs> smoke. That's not what you think of when you think of Exodus, isn't it? You think, oh, we're doing a series on Exodus. So we've got baby Moses in the Nile and the burning bush and the plagues and the Passover and crossing the Red Sea, manna in the desert, Ten Commandments, the golden calf, Moses meeting God upside. You don't think how actually... About a third of the book is instructions for building a tent that they're not allowed to go in. We're encouraged. Come in. Come in and meet with God. And then our sin forces us to keep out. We can't go in. How do we make sense of that? Well, I want to try and pull it all together by showing how Jesus fulfills it all. Jesus fulfills it all. He's the only one who makes sense of this whole thing. It's only in the Lord Jesus Christ that our sin is truly dealt with and we can dwell with God. The tabernacle is ultimately pointing us to him. So in John chapter 1, we're introduced to God, the Word. And then we're told this, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And literally that is, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is God dwelling with his people. 
God and humanity perfectly united in one person. And so in those days, how do you meet with God? How can you possibly come and meet with God? Well, you've got to go to the tabernacle, haven't you? How do we meet with God? You've got to go to the Lord Jesus. He is how the Lord tabernacles among us. And there's so much of the details. There's the lampstand. Well, Jesus is the light of the world, isn't he? We've got on the golden table. Jesus is the bread of heaven given for us, offered to us in fellowship with God. Like the basin, washing us clean of all our sin. The altar of incense, how he enables our prayers to come before God as a pleasing aroma. We don't stink anymore. We don't stink like sin. We have the aroma of Christ. Jesus fulfills all of this. But most clearly, perhaps, Jesus is the true priest, the perfect sinless priest. He doesn't need to make sacrifices on his own behalf like they did a week of sacrifice and then keep on washing and washing and washing. He was the perfect priest. We're told in these instructions uh, about the beautiful robes that the priests would wear. Again, something a little bit like this. It looks like it's being worn by the invisible man, isn't it? But that's, that's sort of showing you the hat, uh, the turban and the, and the outfit there. And there's so much detail and there's writing on the, ter- on the turban that says, holy to the Lord. Again, that's a hat only Jesus can wear, really, isn't it? And if we zoom in, you can see there are jewels on the shoulders, big fat jewels on the shoulders. And chapter 28, verse 9 says, those big jewels would have had the names of the sons of Israel engraved on them, six on one, six on the other. And that breastplate hanging in front You see, it's got 12 gemstones on it. And we're told, chapter 28, verse 21, each one of those gemstones is engraved with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is explained. Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. And just like those tabernacle priests, Jesus represents us as he goes into his Father, remembers us before him as he deals with our sin. We're going to sing about this very shortly, how not just in front of that ark, but before the actual throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Because he's in there on my behalf, nobody can kick me out. Jesus is the priest who, if you like, brings us all the way in all the way in, we can go. And not just to that picture, but to the reality in heaven. We get to go there. We get to be there because he is that priest. And not only is he the priest, he is the sacrifice. It wasn't on an altar, but on a cross that he gave up his life for us. His blood poured out, his body offered up, dying instead of us. Exodus finishes with Moses being shut out. 
And that's because the story isn't finished. If we turn over the page and read the next book of the Bible, Leviticus, uh, it's slightly missed in, in English, but in Hebrew, the first word of Leviticus is and. It's just carrying on, because you're like, well, how are you going to, Moses isn't able to go, okay, and, and then it outlines all the things that need to happen so that people can go in, all the sacrifices that need to be offered so people could know God. Only with those sacrifices could the way to God be opened. And we read through the story as it carries on, that tabernacle tent would be replaced by a bricks and mortar temple that follows exactly that pattern, just stones instead of curtains. But remember what happened the moment Jesus died. As the temple curtain is torn in two, as there's no more loitering outside, no more knowing you won't even get a glimpse, knowing you can't possibly go in. Through the death of Jesus, the way to God is free and clear. Our sins are permanently dealt with. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Jesus fulfills it all. Isn't that glorious? That on the cross, he was kept out so that we can come in. And so, we'd be pretty stupid not to come in. The whole thing is begging us, come in, come in, come in through faith in Jesus. You don't need to stay out anymore. You can come in. Our sin would have kept us far away from God, east of Eden, dirty and separate and outside. But Jesus can bring us back. The whole of this story of Exodus has brought us to this point. It's slavery to sin, to now this amazing freedom in Christ. People who didn't know the Lord, now living as his obedient people, forgiven. That is true freedom, isn't it? As we read this story and see that it's our story as well, how we're rescued from slavery to sin, how we are not just brought in to be left on the outside, but brought all the way in. That's the message, isn't it? Come in. Come in and have the Lord be your Lord and walk with him as your God. Stick with him. Never turn back. Don't turn back to any other God like they did with the golden calf. Don't look back to slavery and sin like they kept trying to do. Go back to Pharaoh. No, we stick with the Lord who redeems us. And if you've never trusted in Jesus before, let the tabernacle be something of a sort of visual aid a bit of a map, if you like. Picture that tent. What does it say? In Jesus, it says, God has come to dwell with us. Your sin can be dealt with. And inside his tent, there's always a light on, food on the table, nobody to kick you out. And amazingly, we don't even need that tent anymore because we can come in through Jesus. Let's pray that we would. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the tabernacle and all that it teaches us about Christ, of the way back to you. And Lord God, we trust in you. Please help us to live in that true freedom of worshipping you, obeying you, serving you, knowing you, being forgiven by you. 
this week, we thank you that we don't need to pitch an actual tent and go into that particular place because the way to you is open. As those curtains were ripped, it's not just that we can come in, it's as if your presence is let out and you are everywhere with us and you dwell within us by your Holy Spirit. So I pray that this week, this knowledge would not just be we learnt some things about an interesting historical building, but we would know you, the true and living God. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.